3CR broadcasts on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. Sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning everyone, you're listening to Monday Breakfast with your host Patty and Ella and Alex. Thanks Pat. Good morning. How's everyone? Uh, had a great weekend. Um, enjoyed that little warm day yesterday. And it was going to be 38 God. degrees today. Yeah, it was hot, wasn't it? I was yeah, sweaty. It hotter, I think. 38. <laughs> My God. And then back down to 19 again tomorrow because we live in Melbourne. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm very actually quite happy about that. <laughs> so, yeah, what's the weather like out there, Paddy? At the moment, it is about 20 degrees, but it's going to jump up to 38 by midday. Wow. Is it going to get cooler after that? There's a Hopefully. cool change coming late in the day, about 8 oh, o'clock. Around 8, okay. God, that seems too hot for me. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be okay. <laughs> Thanks, Paddy. <laughs> Paddy's reassuring me. Yeah. But it's the good news. This is good. I'm just being very English and moaning about everything. So, yeah. No, I'm happy. Obviously <laughs> talks about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What's the hottest it gets in England? Um, well, if it gets up to 30, in my old office, you could ha- actually leave. Like, you didn't have to work in the office. It would be deemed as, like, a health and safety, so you could work from home. 30. 30, yeah, yeah. How bad is that? Oh, my God. So, yeah, it doesn't get that hot. 30 is a very hot day in the summer. Mm. And then, naturally, we're all out there trying to get suntan. Well, if it gets too hot for you, you'll get your ice pack or something. Thank you. Thank now, you, Patrick. What have we got on for today? Okay, so at 8.15, we've got Tuesday brekkie legend, Zoya, who's going to be chatting to us about, um, well, chatting to me. It's kind of like an in-conversation with the two English people at the station because <laughs> um, we've got a UK vote coming up very quickly. And, yeah, we're going to be talking a little bit about the polls in the UK and what sort of just the importance of this vote going forward um so yeah that's at 8.15 have you got your postal vote in the mail yet um i've done my proxy i've got it all set up yeah (laughs) so my sister is going to be voting on my behalf as my proxy which doesn't give me much confidence because she doesn't politically agree with me and so she keeps teasing me and saying that she's not going to vote how i want to vote and i'm like you have to it's legal but um yeah we'll see hopefully and just Otherwise, be- that'd be really bad. Just before that, at 8 o'clock, I'm going to speak to Jenny Weber from the Bob Brown Foundation about new anti-protest laws that passed the lower house in Tasmania. And then, 7.45. Yeah, we've got... I spoke with Helen Dickinson earlier this week, so we'll be hearing that at 7.45. Um, Helen's a professor of public service research and director of public service research group at um, University of New South Wales. Um, and we were having a chat about the upcoming changes to the NDIS. I'm just kind of trying to cut through all the jargon and the bureaucracy of it, make it a bit simpler. 
and easy to understand. I don't know if we quite got there, but it's a lot clearer than, yeah. Awesome. And we also have um, Annie, our friend from Solidarity Breakfast, went to the Julian Assange event, which was called What is Happening to Journalism and the Julian Assange Case. Um, so we're going to be playing the full speech from the keynote speaker, Christian Haffinson. I think I've got that one right, um, who is the editor-in-chief of WikiLeaks. And so we're going to be playing that and... Um, yeah, a bit more from the panel discussion as well. So that's going to come up in about 10 minutes. Um, so, yeah, full-on show. I think we're going to do a bit of alternative news before we get sunken into the Julian Assange, though. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty, say you're gone. This week I was looking at the measles outbreak in Samoa. Um, measles has been popping up again all around the world, but it's hit Samoa particularly hard recently. Um, so since late October, there's been over 4,500 people infected with the disease, um, and at least 20, uh, sorry, 65 have died. Um, so prior to the outbreak, Samoa had very low rates of vaccinations, um, and the government have responded with some pretty drastic measures to change this. Uh, so they declared a state of emergency, uh, had a nationwide shutdown where all businesses and schools were closed, and a mobile vaccination service went out um, vaccinating everyone. Apparently, you could put a red flag out the front of your house and they'd know to go there and give a vaccination. Um, so it's already a massive undertaking for the government. People suspected rates are about 30 to 60%, and they're trying to bring those uh, immunization levels up to 90%. 
Um, but they've had an additional challenge in anti-vaxxers who have really exacerbated the problem. Um, so there was already a pre-existing mistrust in vaccinations before the outbreak. Uh, they had an incident a while ago where two children were um, administered incorrect immunization drugs, and that created a lot of misinformation. Wow. Um, but it seems like Western anti-vaxxers have now jumped in and really made the problem a lot worse. Um, so, yeah, they've been spreading a lot of myths and misinformation <coughs> and really trying to discourage parents from vaccinating. Um, so the government have responded to this by making and what groups laws. are? Do you know what groups they are from um, Western groups? Uh, so there's a few Australians in there, oh. I see. Um, I think there was a couple of Germans, um, but it seems to be a lot of um, yeah, on social media, um, so right. a lot of influencers and people posting really? on Facebook. Anti- saying um, don't get the vaccination. Yeah, um, and yeah, putting out some pretty um, crazy stories along with it wow. um, to the point where the government have actually had to create new laws um, and the first person's been charged recently uh, with incitement against the government. Um, and, yeah, I think they're having a lot more success now. So. What yeah. is their argument against it, the anti-vaxxers? Uh, a bit of everything, I think. <laughs> so the usual, um, I think it, they're saying it causes autism. Um, okay. And because vaccinations have actually been made compulsory now because it's um, yeah become such an issue. Um, so there's one guy comparing it to Nazi Germany, something bizarre mm. <laughs> well that's definitely one for us to keep our eye on I think yeah and just this thing of uh, western westerners coming into other countries trying to enforce their medical practices yeah um, never turns out well <laughs> no no definitely that's really interesting thanks Ella and over the weekend uh, unidentified gunmen fired on anti-government protesters around the main protest camp in Baghdad Iraq Officials say 25 people were killed and 130 wounded. Um, this is the most violent action against protesters since Prime Minister Adel Abdul Mahdi's resignation last week. In Iran, more than 200 people have been killed by security forces, according to Amnesty International. The protests, which began mid-November in response to increasing fuel prices, have seen 7,000 people arrested. And in Hong Kong, protests continue into their sixth month, uh, sixth month, without Chief Executive Carrie Lam budging any further on the demonstrators' demands. Now, last month, Nayuka Gori asked on Q&A, at what point will Australians start burning stuff? In a lot of the mainstream media, this comment was dismissed as inflammatory rhetoric. Yet when we look around the world at the impassioned actions of protesters, the question seems very relevant to today's political climate. Later in the show, when I speak to Jenny Weber about the new anti-protest laws in Tasmania, um, we we see the direction that Australian policing is going um, against protesters and demonstrators. That's been your alternative news for the week. Here's Pussy Riot Police State.
You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Before us was Beyond Zero Emissions, always a great show. Um, and now it's 7.14 and we're going to head into some audio that our friend from Annie, um, from Annie, our friend Annie from Solidarity Breakfast put together for us. So this audio is from the event What is Happening to Journalism and the Julian Assange Case, which took place on Wednesday at the State Library. The editor-in-chief of WikiLeaks, Christian Haffinson, gives a keynote speech, and we have the whole thing, um, as well as the panel discussion, which took place afterwards, with Julian Burnside, Lizzie O'Shea, and Sulette Dreyfus. Annie has put this piece together, and do make sure to keep listening to Solidarity Breakfast, as they may be playing more um, from that event throughout the summer. So we're going to start off by hearing the voice of Christian Heffinson. I first met Assange in the 1990s, early 1990s, I think, when I acted for him because I was doing a lot of computer law stuff and he was charged with being a teenage hacker. And I'd totally forgotten until I met him again in 2012 in the embassy. So uh, I've known Julian for a very long time. Uh, I got to know him around 1994. We got to know each other in part because he was co-running the first free public access internet site uh, here in Australia. Uh, and it was a haven for artists and writers and activists and creatives, programmers, people who wanted to contribute things to the community. Um, and even then, he was an adamant publisher. So he would allow people to publish things on the site, uh, which were controversial and difficult, um, including... Uh, articles backed up by evidence about Scientology and a set of other things. Uh, and he was pretty brave. He dealt with lawyers' letters and threats uh, and, and other assaults on it, uh, but he was willing to stand up for it. And then I knew him all during this period because he was very involved in the free software movement. For those of you who don't know much about the technology side of things, um, you obviously know uh, Julian Assange has got technical skills, but you may not know that for um, more than a decade, he contributed an enormous amount, thousands of hours, uh, to developing free software. And in fact, for some of you who might use uh, an Apple computer, um, there is probably free software in there by Julian Assange. So he wrote software that uh, helped to develop one of the operating systems, um, a variety of Unix. He contributed all of this labor for free. Uh, he wrote software that helped to make the news function of the um, early Internet function in a more optimized way, which meant it was easier for more people to get news. Um, he, uh, he wrote, he designed and wrote, and I was part of the project, uh, that developed the first open source software uh, that was deniable cryptography file system. Um, this was envisaged to be used by human rights groups around the world. Um, it allowed you to store, for example, on a hard drive, multiple layers of encrypted files so that if human rights workers taking witness statements uh, in Guatemala um, about genocide uh, against um, the, uh, the original peoples uh, in Cambodia, in Sri Lanka, took witness statements in rural areas and put them on these hard drives, they could add a layer of something else on the top with a different password. And if they were seized and tortured, they could give the password to that layer with very little information on it, and the other layer would never be discoverable. 
Um, he wrote free software available, gave it away to everyone, uh, which allowed people to test the cybersecurity robustness of their computer systems connected to the Internet. So much of this is not known um, about Julian, uh, and it's an incredible act of altruism to contribute in this free software community, but that in itself uh, was many years of work. Now, straight into it, talking about some of these recent raids on journalists in Australia. So I just wanted to remind people about this. On, on June the 4th, um, uh, police conducted a raid of Annika Smithhurst's um, house, uh, which they went through her personal belongings. It was relating to a story she'd published revealing a proposal for the Australian Signals Directorate, which is um, obviously an arm of the intelligence uh, agencies, they were planning to take on an expanded domestic role and that figures within government were concerned about this and that was the substance of her story which prompted then the raid. And then uh, on June the 5th, just a day later, the Sydney headquarters of the ABC were raided over a 2017 series about accusations of war crimes committed by Australia's special forces in Afghanistan. Both those stories to me seem clearly within the public interest and I think a lot of people were quite concerned about these raids being associated with those stories. I mean, it obviously raises questions about what is the right line to draw when uh, public interest journalism conflicts with the interests of the national security state, some of which may be legitimate, but some of which may not be. Julian, were you surprised that these raids occurred? What do you think that they reflect generally about the state of the Australian democracy? I was surprised that they occurred and I was shocked that they occurred. And it suggests that Journalism is in real trouble in this country. In fact, all of us, all of us are in real trouble in this country. I imagine not many people in this room are aware of the case of Witness J. Not Witness K with Bernard Cleary, but Witness J. Witness J served for, I think, 10 years in the armed services, in the intelligence branch of the armed services. He was then tried secretly and convicted and jailed secretly in the ACT um, for some sort of uh, intelligence offence. We're not allowed to know what it was because it's all secret. He was held, I think, 15 months in a jail in the ACT and even the ACT Attorney General did not know of his case. That's how secret it all was. Um, Witness J began writing an anonymous autobiography with all relevant names and details anonymised. Um, the Federal Police heard about this and executed a raid on his police cell and a raid on his home. Um, and it was only through that process that he discovered that he's the subject of a lifetime ban on saying anything at all about anything he experienced in his time with the military. Now, Open justice is a profoundly important element of any democratic society. You heard Kristen refer before to the trial of Dreyfus in France in the late 19th century, but in 1916, Sir Roger Casement was tried in London for treason, which is about as serious as it gets. It was an open trial, and you could get the transcript then. You can read the transcript now. Um, after the Second World War, the look, World War, the man who was known as Lord Haw-Haw was tried for treason in an open trial. Now, if open trials were okay for them in England, why can't we have open trials in Australia? Why is it that the Attorney General can authorise uh, suppression orders to be made by courts 
um, in circumstances where the national security interest is said to be at risk. Anyway, um, the point is many people in our government have been guilty of crimes against humanity, not least because of their treatment of asylum seekers, uh, but they can't be prosecuted except with the written approval of the Attorney-General. That's part of Australia's law. That same Attorney-General who refuses to prosecute members of his own party or members of the opposition who are likewise guilty of crimes against humanity, that Attorney-General has power to authorise a prosecutor to ask the court for a secret trial. Now, that debases one of the most fundamental principles of the freedom of the press and the democratic system. We really need to be alarmed at the fact that the case of Witness J was possible in this country. We need to be alarmed at the fact that we have a government which introduced laws which allow the Liberal Attorney-General to apply to a court for secrecy orders in relation to any prosecution, leave aside a prosecution that involves national security interests, whatever that may mean in the particular circumstances. We really need to stand up for open justice. Otherwise, any one of you could just disappear overnight and no one would know where you'd gone. Even if you'd been taken off and tried secretly and jailed secretly, no one would be allowed to say where you were. No one would be allowed to know where you were or why you disappeared. That is very alarming. And it's something that every Australian should be alarmed about. Not just the people who are at the cutting edge of protest against the government, but every one of us, because every one of us is capable of being that one man in the street that Kristen spoke about, that one man in the street who starts the movement. If you're that person, you better be worried because we have a government that is willing to jump on you. And I think the responsibility of every single one of us here tonight is that we should get angry at our government and at the opposition. Have you heard any Labor members opposing the fact of Witness J? Not one. Um, you need to get angry at the government, get angry at the opposition, get active to oppose these things which make all this sort of stuff possible and, as Kristen said, never give up. Never give up. Never give up. So, Sulet, I wanted to talk a little bit more about then the practice of journalism in Australia, in part because what I think these raids show and some of the issues that Julian was just talking about is that being a national security journalist or covering national security topics in Australia is a very perilous business. And I did then want to talk about what was the particular contribution of, say, WikiLeaks to this um, field um, of, of national security reporting. It's obviously WikiLeaks is a specific mode of publishing and that it does give access to source material. I wondered if you could talk a bit about that from the perspective of a journalist. So a lot of the media has focused on um, all sorts of criticisms of Julian that are uh, really strange and pedantic, small, minor things, but has missed the big picture. And that's unfortunate because if you look at the ways in which he, uh, as the editor of WikiLeaks, transformed how we receive news and information, uh, they are quite extraordinary. So the anonymous digital Dropbox, largely a WikiLeaks invention. We look around today and we see the New York Times, uh, Bloomberg Media, we see um, Gizmodo, for those who use it, uh, NBC, Dagbladet, Norwegian, the CBC, which is the ABC of Canada, as well as the ABC here, using anonymous digital drop boxes for whistleblowers to provide information to journalists in the public interest. That came about 
because of Julian Assange. Um, we see the popularized use of data set journalism, that is, taking large sets of data, analyzing it and looking for patterns and trends to understand what's really happening to then tell the story. That is largely because of Julian Assange. Um, we see the, the kind of invented verification journalism. That is not just that you do the analysis with the data set, but you publish it with the story. You do that to prove to your readers the story you are telling is truthful. And that's extra important in an era of fake news. That is largely true and popularized because of Julian Assange. We see collaborative global partnerships in journalism across countries and publications on a scale that was never seen before across different companies and organizations, some 90-plus different media organizations not in the same company, not in the same media family because of Julian Assange. And we see a popularization of cybersecurity training of journalists, um, much more widespread. I've been very active in some of it. That has largely happened because of Julian Assange. So these are all really important innovations for journalism, but it actually goes beyond that. We are sitting in a state library. Libraries are valuable archives of information. Julian Assange and WikiLeaks has created perhaps the most important archive online library of information, of data, around international, U.S. international public policy making and decision making, particularly around uh, war decisions, war policy, that for the modern era that exists today. And it is not behind closed walls in a private collection. It's not even inaccessible on books on a shelf. It's available to everyone, free today and searchable. And that is because of Julian Assange's vision. Uh, so I think those are all things that are really important to recognize that in their totality are extraordinary. Any one of them would have been a kind of lifetime achievement for someone who is uh, a publisher, a journalist who cares about access to public information. But all of them together provide a life's work over a decade and a half that is just exceptional. Um, Kristen, I wanted to come... We do not want to interrupt spontaneous applause. Um, Kristen, I wanted to come back to you uh, because I want you to give it to us straight. Um, Reporters Without Borders has ranked Australia's 21st in the world for press freedom in 2019, dropping two places since last year. Um, we've talked about these raids, obviously, but uh, the constitutional lawyer, George Williams, has pointed out that since September 11, 2001, we've had 75 rounds of national security legislation um, of varying degrees of seriousness for the uh, practice of national security journalism. What is our reputation abroad, or what's your perspective as an outsider in terms of uh, our freedom of the press and the effect that that has on democracy? Well, what I knew about uh, the, the press in this country uh, before I met Julian and uh, throughout uh, was, was limited. I knew there was a, a, a concentration of ownership. Same problem we see in other territories, which of course is problematic. Uh, I learned about, uh, you know, the usual uh, attempt to uh, stifle public broadcaster through uh, 
strangling or limiting the blood flow, blood flow basically through budgetary cuts. Uh, that is a problem that is occurring everywhere, seeing that as a pattern. Um, I think that, uh, that uh, the press freedom in, uh, in Australia, as observed by, uh, by uh, other uh, nations, is that it is uh, relatively okay. Uh, I was actually stunned to learn just recently about uh, all these legal actions that have been taken against uh, uh, press freedom and civil liberties in this country, 70-plus legislation since, since the turn of the century, since 9-11, basically. Uh, so I was a bit surprised to get to know the, 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 the serious situation or the level of, uh, of, uh, of uh, the limitations that the press in Australia have to deal with. Uh, but I also want to say that, uh, that uh, you see that in, in other countries as well. Uh, press freedom is under attack all over the world. Uh, and uh, the attack on journalists are happening in, 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 uh, in every country on a more regular basis than before. And partly the, the raids here this summer were possibly a pattern that you could link to the arrest of Julian Assange on April 11th in that uh, uh, disgraceful manner than when he was arrested and dragged out of the embassy. I believe that that, that event emboldened those who want to crack down on press freedom. I think there's a link between what happened there and what happened here in June. I think there's a link between what happened to Julian and the attacks on, on journalists in, in Brazil, where journalists like Grant Greenwald might face prosecution and arrest. There have been arrests in the United States as well. I was at the Bundestag in Germany uh, just two days before flying to Australia, and I heard of cases, very worrisome cases, in European countries. So this is a universal thing, and it's all linked together. This is a concentrated attack on press freedom all over the world. And when one uh, government takes steps like here in Australia, it sends a signal. It sends a signal it's okay. So, that's, so it's, a, it's like a virus. It will spread. So we have to fight back now before everything is lost. Very important we do that. I, I think it's worth adding to that. Uh, If what Julian Assange did was a problem, let's be candid. Back when he, when WikiLeaks published that stuff about what had happened in Iraq, not many people were getting news from WikiLeaks. The reason all of us heard about it was because of the Murdoch Press. The, the Murdoch Press republished the juicy bits. Now, no one is going after Rupert Murdoch saying he's a criminal. No one is trying to extradite him to anywhere or prosecute him for anything. What is it that Assange has done that Murdoch didn't do, apart from the fact that he brought it to the attention of fewer people? Now, I think that's the thing you need to take real account of if you're concerned about freedom of the press. The press is sort of selectively free. You know, if you're a big mogul, then you can do or say what you like. America is trying to extradite Assange from Britain right now on espionage charges which do not attract the First Amendment defence. 
The First Amendment defence, you'll recall, became very important for Daniel Ellsberg in connection with Watergate because although the original material had been leaked illegally and the leaking, no doubt, was a criminal offence, the publication of it was said by the Supreme Court of the US not to be a criminal offence because of the First Amendment. Now, if that's right, we ought to be outraged that the American government is now trying to extradite him to America and, as Christian said, it will amount to a life sentence. He faces the prospect of dying in jail over there. And let's not be coy about this. Um, the, the person who leaked the material to him, who's now known as Chelsea Manning, has recently been thrown in jail by grand jury, placed in an all-male jail by the authorities, but held in solitary confinement. Now, if that's not an indication of where America is going, I don't know what else is. We really need to be very worried about the state of journalism and the risk at which journalists stand. Julian Assange is a great illustration of that. Uh, he shouldn't be. He doesn't deserve it. Um, yeah, I think I'd be less animated about this if Rupert Murdoch was facing the same fate. Uh, but even, even for him, even for him, I would say his rights need to be defended and Assange's rights need to be defended and your rights need to be defended because what is happening to journalism across the West puts all of us at risk. We are actually, we are seeing with cases like Witness J and the treatment of Assange and Australia's total indifference to it, we are seeing Australia developing into a kind of, um, what, what should I say? I was going to say autocracy, but a dictatorship, something like that. Um, and it's very worrying. It should concern every single one of you. And that was audio from the event on last Wednesday at the State Library called What is Happening to Journalism and the Julian Assange Case, put together by Annie from Solidarity Breakfast. Now we're going to go to Young People by Fulton Street.
You're listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. That was Problems and Pain by Fulton Street. And uh, what do we have next, Ella? Yeah, next up is my interview with Helen Dickinson. I spoke to her earlier this week about the upcoming changes in the NDIS. So there's, there's a whole series of different changes. So there's six different areas um, that have been identified that need reform. Um, and a lot of them are around things like quicker access and better decision-making around the scheme and making sure that there's consistent decisions um, that are equitable for everybody um, and that improve the long-term um, outcomes for participants. Um, so within that, um, with each of, those, each of those six different aims, there are a suite of different um, changes within there, and they'll take effect at different points. Um, but the majority of them should be in place by about the middle of next year. And they're designed to fix some existing issues with the scheme, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So there are currently a number of issues around um, the flexibility of the scheme. So um, when you have a plan, you have um, funds that are allocated to different categories. Um, and sometimes it's not very easy. Um, if you find that your needs change slightly or you can't get access to particular things, it's not very easy to switch your funds across those different categories. So there are some, so there's some changes that are going to make the scheme more flexible um, in that way. In terms of the planning process, also um, as of, I think, April next year, people are going to start to see a, a draft of their plan before they receive it. So at the moment what happens is you go into a planning meeting um, and then a bit after that you receive the, the finalised plan. But if that isn't right or if, you've, if something's been missed or misunderstood in that process, um, then that means that you have to then go through a plan review. Um, so people are going to start to be able to see drafts of theirs um, before they're, they're finalised. Um, they're also going to be um, changes to make plans for some people longer. So at the moment, most people have a new plan every year, which is used every 12 months. Some people have a two-year plan, but it's, it's a relatively small percentage. Um, but um, soon people are going to be able to request a plan of three years. So if you have um, a fairly stable um, impairment and, and your life circumstances are, are fairly stable, um, it may be that you can have that longer plan without having to be reviewed every um, every 12 months. Um, and there's also some other changes around um, who pays for um, assessments. So at the moment, when you go through a planning process, sometimes you might have to pay um, for some assessments by different professionals um, to go into your plan. Um, but now what's going to happen is they're all going to be paid by the NDIA. So there's a whole series of different plans that um, are picking up issues that have been highlighted by people with disability and community organisations for some time now. Are there any issues that still remain or anything you need, think the government needs to focus on? Uh, well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's a massive scheme. It's, you know, there's a whole amount of new money going into the scheme and it's creating new disability markets and new ways of working around the country. And so there are always going to be issues that will happen around that and there'll be a lot to learn from that. I think um, one of the challenges that I see is the NDIA, the agency that um, is charged with administering the scheme, um, they have a cap that has been put on their staffing. So they were in, originally envisaged to be a particular size, um, but there was a decision taken back in 2014 to cap the number of people who worked for that organisation. And I think some of the challenges that we see arise out of the fact that there isn't enough capacity 
in that agency to do some of the work that it needs to do. So um, I think all of the sorts of changes we talked about are very welcome um, by people, but to some degree the, the devil is in, in the detail in the terms of how these things will be delivered. So um, even though if we have longer plans, that means there are fewer um, plans that need to be done. So if people are doing them every three years as well, and every 12 months, that's, you know, uh, fewer plans to be done. But still, there are a lot of people um, who, who need to um, who need to have plans. And there isn't a lot of spare capacity um, in the NDIA. Um, another challenge that um, I'm really interested in is, I mean, all of these changes are around how we ensure that people get good plans um, and can make good decisions around the services. Um, but having a plan doesn't necessarily mean that you can access some of those services. So we're seeing what the NBIA refers to as thin markets um, emerge around the country. And there where people um, have uh, provision made within their plans for certain services, but they can't get access to them either because they don't exist in those areas or there are really big waiting lists for them. So even for quite, um, you know, uh, quite common services like occupational therapy, there are some really big waiting lists around the country for those services. So there's a real need to kind of think about um, how we do some of that market stewardship role so we can make sure that people have the services that they need that are uh, made available. And, and the final kind of challenge within that is there has been some disquiet within the provider um, community. Um, and so if you look at things like um, national disability services, which is the peak body for community organisations who deliver disability services. Um, they do an, uh, a survey every year of providers, and providers within that have been telling us for a couple of years that um, the amount that is a fixed tariff for some services isn't sufficient um, for them to be able to deliver that service. So they're finding themselves in financial deficit now. There were some changes made to some aspects of, of pricing this year, picking up on those issues. Um, and, and, and I wonder whether some of that issue isn't about necessarily the, the level of the pricing, but the fact that providers are having to behave very differently in this new market than they did in the previous service. They need a lot more business skills to be able to um, individually contract for these services. So there's a bit of an issue around capacity for providers and the need for some support around the area. So as I said, there, there are a, a number of issues still within the system, but um, I think we've got to be really careful to say that doesn't mean that the NDIS isn't working. It is working for some people, and, you know, the, we really needed an improvement to disability services in this country, um, and we just need to make sure that politicians and the NDIA uh, and providers can continue to listen to people with disability uh, and to respond to those changes. Yeah, as you said, it's a, such a massive project. Do you think the issues are an overall part of the teething process or is um, there more an issue with the approach of the government? Is there enough consultation with people with the lived experience and service I, providers? I think, yeah, there's always an ongoing challenge um, in that people with disability are not listened to in a number of different ways. And, you know, we've got to remember the history of we, we have often not listened to people with disability. They've, you know, been forced into particular services and been asked to feel grateful for those. And we still have really significant um, uh, inequitable outcomes for people with disability. Many people are isolated um, from the mainstream community. And so there are real, some real issues there. So 
but the NDIS isn't the only thing um, that, that should be dealing with that. You know, um, there are other um, things that are going on with other government services or with our mainstream community more broadly that will be needed to, to address some of those issues. Uh, it, it, the scale of the scale and scope of change associated with the NDIS is significantly more huge than we've seen in other um, comparable systems. So um, I'm from the UK originally, um, and the sorts of changes that have happened there around the individualization of funding, um, which is one part of, of the NDIS, we essentially evolved to those systems over about 30 years. Um, and Australia has gone through this um, within kind of, you know, how you look at it, sort of about, you know, a couple of years, five years at the most sort of experience where other systems have taken decades. So the, the speed of change um, was always going to lead to difficulties. So um, this would never be a kind of, you could never just plan this um, process and it would work, you know, everybody would fall into place exactly like we wanted to. Um, and so we just need to continue to make sure we consult with a wide range of different people and to hear um, some of those issues and obviously with the Royal Commission in, um, that's going on at the moment around uh, disability there, there are going to be some really challenging stories that, that we will hear coming out of there and we need to um, really listen to those carefully and think about how we adjust our, uh, our service systems but also our community more broadly to be able to um, deal with some of those issues. Finally, I know um, aside from issues with the scheme itself, it seems just understanding all the nuts and bolts of NDAS can be really difficult. Um, I worked in disability care myself and I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. Um, do you have any advice for people who are receiving funding trying to process all the information? Oh, there's no doubt that it's a, it is a huge challenge. And this, in research that I've done, it's the thing that people tell us most often is just navigating the system is hugely, hugely difficult. Um, one of the things um, that has helped a lot of people through planning processes um, is taking um, either a professional or a member of family or a friend into those planning processes who can help guide. And, and there is provision to pay for somebody um, to do that, although unfortunately many people don't know about that in their first plan and don't kind of realise that for their uh, for their second plan. Um, so um, having people who can help support you through those processes and, um, and ask, uh, listen and, and help ask some of those difficult questions is, is really useful. Um, there are a number of um, community organisations around the country who are doing some really good work in trying to um, help explain um, and describe um, and advocate. Um, uh, and so people like... Um, Every Australian uh, people like those organisations are really helpful in advising and advocating for individuals. So um, getting in touch with people and telling them some of your story um, and seeing what they can do to support that, I think it's a really helpful process. And that was my interview with Professor Helen Dickinson uh, from the University of New South Wales on the upcoming changes to the NDIS. VCR broadcasters present over a hundred radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come smarter than a VCR community radio. Please subscribe now. تستمعون إلى إلى VCR community radio أرجاء الاشتراك الآن.
நீங்கள் உங்களின் சமூக வானொலி த்ரீசியாரை கேட்டுக்கொண்டிருக்கின்றீர்கள் You're listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR, and here's Towards the Sun by Chelsea Drugstore. How does it get to the point of nothing else? It's a crossed-out reminder on a page that won't be read. Longing for a seed that may somehow repair And a walk across the coals that still burns the flesh I never wanted to run I said this to you all along Broken can't be undone With a tale when the morning comes As I set a course Toward the sun
That was Chelsea Drugstore with Towards the Sun. And here's another track from Fulton Street, Ain't Here to Be Kind. ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And for all the people that are so afraid of the solution, 
solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead. The current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun, which way the wind blows. In November, anti-protest laws passed the lower house of the Tasmanian parliament, which could see peaceful demonstrators face lengthy jail sentences and fines up to $10,000. This morning we're going to speak to Jenny Weber, campaign manager of the Bob Brown Foundation, about how this new legislation will affect activism on the front line. Thanks for speaking to us this morning, Jenny. Hi, how are you going? Good, thanks. How are you? Good. So I wanted to ask you, uh, what are these new laws and who are they targeting? Uh, so the, the new anti-protest laws, they are an amendment to the bill that the Tasmanian government brought in and Bob Brown and Jessica Hoyt successfully challenged in the High Court. Um, when they won in the High Court, the Tasmanian government were determined to um, continue to find ways to increase penalties for protesters in Tasmania. And so they uh, have redrafted the bill and introduced it to Tasmanian Parliament. And as you uh, introduced, it was already passed. Um, one of the problems with the new anti-protest law is have removed all reference to protesters, which actually makes it quite vague and problematic because then it can um, be targeted against everyone. Oh, wow. Um, which is quite a harsh and uh, problematic part of the new bill. Very tyrannical. Uh, so in Tasmania, what, police, what powers do police and the courts have over protesters at the moment? Well, see, this is our point. We've been saying about how unnecessary these new protest laws are because the police are able to remove uh, people from protest areas. Uh, this morning we have a tree sitter in court. He has been um, charged with trespass in a protest that we had in a threatened forest a couple of weeks ago in the Tarkine. So last week we also had someone in court who had been charged with the same thing and was penalised and um, even in Tasmania there's enough laws that uh, are able to remove someone from an area that is contentious, what the government is calling business premises. However, um, some of these places are sometimes public forests um, and the other thing about the new anti-protest law is it's extending to be able to uh, have public thoroughfares deemed uh, areas that protesters can't be. Um, also, the um, great uh, vast swathe of ocean that we have around Tasmania um, because they're looking at trying to protect fish farms. Um, so the broad um, definition of what an area is that a citizen can be hit by these anti-protest laws is also um, quite harsh and problematic. But we... Um, uh, just saying, these are unnecessary. We already have laws in Tasmania that have been working for the benefit of the corporations and the government for a long time um, and been penalising protesters. Could, could you tell us a little bit about the work that the Bob Brown Foundation does with the environment and um, how these laws will impact on these actions in the future if, they do, if it does pass the upper house? 
so potentially one of the things that is um, a really big worry for any organisation is that organisations who um, organise protests could be up for being um, penalised $100,000 under these new laws. Um, that could include someone like the Bob Brown Foundation. So we organise uh, a major campaign that we focus on is the Tarkine. Um, the Tarkine is this incredible vast area of uh, rainforest in the northwest of Tasmania and um, coastal, a strip of coast that has Aboriginal heritage that's um, unprotected and damaged by off-road vehicles travelling over it. Um, I was just in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago. There was a beautiful woman, Carla Scotto, a designer who had an exhibition for the Bob Brown Foundation, and I was talking to some people about how that rainforest in the Tarkine is closer to Melbourne than it is to me here in Hobart. It's actually, um, you know, Australia's largest temperate rainforest, and it's threatened by logging. So uh, we have a blockade currently in place in the Tarkine in an area um, that the Tasmanian government wants to push a new logging road in and log the forest. So um, we focus on trying to get a national park world heritage listing um, for the Tarkine. In this age of climate emergency, for us to still have vast tracts of intact forest and um, intact nature that is left open for logging, um, off-road vehicle damage to Aboriginal heritage and mining is just um, so archaic. We also uh, spent some time working on the Sopadani campaign. Um, this last year we had a significant Sopadani convoy and uh, since then we've been just doing some, some work with the um, Frontline Action on Coal activists to support them and the Wanganjangalingu Family Council um, and we're establishing a um, investigative arm of the Bob Brown Foundation called Adani Watch, which we want to expose um, the operations of Adani throughout the world and bring attention to the fact that so many people in Australia don't even know that Adani is uh, the company and is displacing Indigenous people in um, India. They're threatening the Hasday Iran forest. Um, so we, we do a broad um, level of environmental campaigning as Bob is such an um, environmental leader on, on many different environmental campaigns, but we focus in on the Tarkine and a little bit on the Sopadani campaign. So, so this is really important work and uh, these laws are really going to impact on that work. Uh, is it possible to stop these laws coming in, into effect? You did it once in the High Court. Yes. So firstly, it hasn't actually passed the upper house in Tasmania. So um, we still see that we've got a big campaign to be had over the next month. So it'll be about March or April that the Legislative Council will um, be looking at these laws. Um, and this is about fighting for people's freedoms. Um, we always, at every step, need to understand that we have to fight for our freedom. And we can't just um, throw our hands up in the air and say, oh, these anti-protest laws are coming through. We just have to work out ways to engage people to um, be committed to saying, we don't want these laws and the Legislative Council has the power to not pass them. That's one first step, is to try and get them knocked out from the um, Parliament in this next phase. Um, we did, unfortunately, do a lot of lobbying. We had a fantastic rally um, of hundreds of people in, you know, on Parliament lawns, 
Um, you know, there were lots of the unions were lobbying, the civil libertarians were um, lobbying, and, and we didn't get through to the Tasmanian lower house. However, the problem with the Tasmanian lower house was that there was one person, and that was um, an independent who is a, um, a far-right independent who voted with the government. So, unfortunately, sometimes in Parliament it comes down to one person, just like we saw with the Medivac bill last week with Jackie Lammy. It can come down to some one person who can have the power. And um, that independent, Madeleine Ogilvie, could, if she had voted against the laws, they would have been thrown out. So we'll do a fair bit of work on um, trying to get them thrown out of the Legislative Council. Um, we'll also, um, following, if, if that um, doesn't work and, and the laws pass, then we'll see what happens with a challenge to the laws in the High Court. Not saying that the Foundation or Bob or Jessica Hoyt would do it again. However, um, we did prove with that important case that you can challenge laws um, if they're as problematic as they are, as the anti-protest laws are in Tasmania, then they should be challenged. Um, look, one of the really great comments from an academic around the debate was that uh, government breed fear and um, through policies and laws they can um, pursue fear and I think that that's what's going on here. That, that academic said that the, the latest iteration of a government breeding fear in Australia is these anti-protest laws and they're really trying to target people um, in a time when protest is, is uprising more and more as it should because of the climate emergency and the global climate strikes um, you know the increased um, activities of destroying the environment um, so it's just something that we need to fight and we need to fight for the freedoms of everyone. Thanks so much for telling us about this this morning Jenny and thanks for all the work the foundation does protecting the land. What can people do if they want to get involved or contribute? Well, actually, Carla Scotto the other week in Melbourne was a perfect example about how people can make change just being one person with a small um, little effort, which is actually quite significant. So Carla had a great exhibition in uh, Fitzroy with 35 artists, and it raised awareness about the planet, it raised awareness about our foundation, and it raised some funds for us as well. Um, we also have ways that you can get involved. Um, you can go directly to our blockade. Uh, last summer, we had a blockade for the same. We had in the same forest, and we we saved those forests from logging. And um, a third of the people that went there were from Melbourne. Um, it was a great representation of Melbourne folk at our blockade. And and it's not very far to head over the Bass Strait and join our forest campaign. Um, there's also ways that you can support us by checking out our website, bobbrown.org.au, and volunteering with us in Melbourne or um, just supporting us with online campaigns. Thank you so much, Jenny. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm sure that many of our listeners will be interested in coming across the pond and checking that out. Excellent. Thanks, Patrick. Bye. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever... There are chemical corporations around the world. They're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. 
Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is out. Rumination, 3CR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues Program, featuring information on health and housing services, as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to be speaking to Zoya, our Tuesday brekkie friend and legend, who is going to come and chat now to me and the gang about the latest vote in the UK, which is going to be happening on Thursday. So, Zoya, welcome to the show. Hi, it's so weird to be on the Monday. I know. (laughs) What are you doing here? No, thank you so much. Um... So, the UK is about to have its fourth major vote in five years. As a fellow Brit, how are you feeling about it? Oh, I, I honestly, I frankly don't even have the words. It is <laughs> utterly, I, I, I've been doing research, I'm kind of like looking at the polls and looking at just, yeah, like you said, four votes in five years. It is just utterly shocking what's happening over there. It beggars belief, quite frankly. I know. And I was having a look at the polls as well, and I'm slightly terrified because from what I've seen this morning, Johnson is ahead. So the, the Conservative Party is ahead in the polls at the moment. Um, the Conservative Party is ahead, but Labour are closing in. Whether that can happen in time, we don't know. But there was a two-point drop in the polls from Wednesday to Saturday last night from a um, 10-point lead to an 8-point lead. And it's so close to call that not a single one of the major polling um, companies are able to even make a, a educated guess about the results of the, of the election. Mm. There's a difference of 30,000 people, effectively, in 41,000 people in about 36 swing seats wow. that um, could uh, make a difference between a hung parliament and a conservative landslide. That's how small it is. Oh, God. But the thing is, how do we even trust the polls? They get them wrong every single year. I know. They used to be relatively not accurate, but at least give you a direction. Mm. But what was it? It was the 2015 general election, then the 2016 referendum and the 2017 election, and all of them got it totally wrong. Yeah. And we see that through, throughout Australia and the US as well. The polls aren't getting it right at the moment. It's across the board, which I just, oh, I'm really torn between whether I even want to look at them or not or take them into consideration. Um, but have you spoken to any family and friends back at home and how, what the atmosphere is like at home at the moment? I have a little bit. And obviously Brexit is the word in everyone's lips. Mm. But the most interesting thing is speaking to family and friends, or family especially, who previously used to be relatively uh, stable conservative voters. And many of them are voting with them now to the because of Brexit being because of it being an anti-Brexit vote. And that's really reflecting the most recent YouGov poll, which said that the Lib Dems are the main anti-Brexit party. Yeah, which 
in oh sorry go ahead no 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 go ahead Sawyer which I think is in some ways a positive thing but in another way I mean it's always good for there to be more than two main parties but in another way there is a concern that potentially the minor parties might split the vote with Labour in particular in the climate of the anti-Semitism debacle that is Jeremy Corbyn's leadership mm. and yeah it's it's quite scary <laughs> yeah it is and the, I'm, I mean, I, I think we can definitely say, obviously, Conservative and Labour are the, the two main parties. But the Lib Dems are saying that they, that in their manifesto, that they will be pulling out of the Brexit rat race. Mm. Labour's going to hold a referendum to decide mm. the Brexit sort of future. And the Conservatives are still going to be running full steam ahead. So they... We do, as as a sort of a nation at the moment, we having we do have three main choices here when it's coming when it comes to Brexit. The thing that surprised me is that people don't seem to be very happy with Labour saying that they're going to hold another referendum. I've seen quite a lot of negative um, sort of backlash from that comment. Why do you think that is? I think people are really tired of the back and forth. Mm. I mean, I, that's that's just my gut feeling I, I i really that's not backed up by any knowledge whatsoever other than being british so, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, i mean if you if you think about it this is last year was the only year since 2015 that we haven't had a major vote mm. so really i think people are just sort of going can we just get rid of it I, I think in many ways maybe they're even thinking of this election as a referendum on Brexit. This is a Brexit election, right? Yeah. For, for, be, for better or worse, this is a Brexit election. And I think people are really quite sick of it, especially when you think that this result could trigger independence referendums in Scotland or even a push for independence in Northern Ireland. I think people are just kind of over being asked. I think they've lost faith in democracy. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And I think the Conservatives are also, like Boris Johnson, is heavily pushing on the fact that um, that you will have to make another decision again as a voter, and, and that's part mm. of that's part of the campaign against Labour. Um, and yeah, mm. and he, he seems to be doing that quite well because yeah, the polls are saying so. And I've, I mean, even from my own network back at home, I come from um, sort of East London, Essex way, and it, it's. It's always been typically Labour. Now it's way more conservative than it ever has been. Really? Yeah, which is quite scary. And so I'm seeing a lot of people switching from um, Labour to Conservative. And um, actually, the borough that I'm from in Havering was the um, the biggest London borough vote to leave the EU. So for the Brexit, so that was 70 percent, which is huge. 70%. Yeah. And then they campaigned to leave London after, which was hilarious. Um, but yeah, I think it's I think it's just oh god, time time's going to tell here. But the Tories' manifesto, one thing that they're saying is they want to introduce an Australian-style point-based immigration system, which they are claiming treats everyone equally, regardless of where they come from. Um, but what I just was intrigued to know your thoughts on this as well, because you've been in Australia now for god ten or so years, is it? Yeah, and and, and yeah, and it, have you got? First, I mean, you must have first-hand experience of the points-based system, or no? Not personally, oh, okay. not personally, but I do. I am kind of across it, and I have been. Yes, I saw that. Uh, I saw a bit of uh, reporting on that and the points-based system. The interesting thing is that they're calling it an Australian-style points-based system, 
that's been a word being bandied about in the UK since 2007 under the Labour government. But in reality, it's not an Australian points-based system because it doesn't um, really rank the points in the same way. And it ultimately is going to effectively bar immigration by lower and medium skilled workers who in reality are the people that we need. So, you know, a brain surgeon can get heaps of points, but someone who is a butcher or works in an abattoir that requires skill and training can't get as many points or any points whatsoever. And many of the people who work in abattoirs in the, in the UK, for example, come from Eastern Europe. And so if Brexit were to happen, that wouldn't, that wouldn't happen. So I think there is going to be a real drop in long-term, medium and low-skilled work workers, I suppose, which is going to have an enormous impact on the UK economy. But in reality, the Australian-style title is a result of just PR and marketing as opposed to a, a real reflection of the Australian system, whether or not you agree with the Australian system. I'm not saying that I do. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so once again, it's marketing winning out over policy. Yeah, exactly. And have you seen anything in this election so far that has has swayed you one way or another or has um, angered you one way or another? Uh, I think part part of it is somehow the Conservatives managing to position themselves as the non-bigoted party by leveraging off the anti-Semitism issue within Labour, which I'm not underplaying whatsoever. It is absolutely unacceptable, the streak and long-term existence of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. But I think that is forgetting that it exists just as strongly, if not more strongly, in the Conservative Party, along with a whole swathe of other types of bigotry. And this is instead revealing the theme of anti-Semitism that exists within the UK across the board. And it's just being used as a punching bag for Labour in many ways, I think. Not that, not that there isn't a justification for saying don't vote Labour because they're not dealing with the issue, right? They're not, but no. Think, Jeremy Corbyn think, hasn't yeah. addressed it at all, has he? Not at all. He's barely apologised. It is, it is utterly shameful, I mean, which is why I can see why the Lib Dems, for example, will flat out refuse to um, work with Corbyn if he tries to form a hum, hum, uh, coalition government with them if there's a hung parliament there's a likelihood that if we end up with a hung parliament and the Conservatives can't make a government, Corbyn, even if he is the second, even if Labour are the second most successful party, then Corbyn may well end up having to step aside if, he, if Lib Dems are able to make a coalition yeah. with them. So, yeah, so I think that's the most shocking thing. Not shocking, it's not unsurprising, but just the level of just racism and prejudice that's happening at the moment and mm. then the, the, the using it using it as a tool which i find very upsetting mm. so who who in your head um what what we're going to see in the next week this time next week who is going to be the leader <laughs> of the uk uh, oh, I don't know. whoever it is uh, whoever it is they're going to be a numpty <laughs> yeah absolutely numpties all around. one way or another right yeah, yeah. I, I, I really hate to say it, but I, I think Conservative, is they're going to win again. Yeah, um, I, I think they're going to win, but I, I have a feeling that they're going to lose a fair few seats. My hope is a hung parliament. I think that's the best, that's the best option we can get right now. Mm. But whether that'll happen, I don't know. Wow. Well, it would be great to, um, to speak again once this, yeah, this all sort of happens and we find out who the next leader is and the yeah whole situation going forward yeah this time next week look back and go, well, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, we'll replay it just for pure banter. Um, thank you so much, Zoya, for joining us today. Thanks so much, Alan. No worries. Have a great show tomorrow. And, yeah, speak Cheers. soon. All right, bye. See ya. I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. Here's the Children Came Back by Briggs, featuring Grummel and Dwayne Everett-Smith.
And a big thank you to all our guests on Monday Breakfast today. Uh, you're listening to 3CR. Stay tuned for Women on the Line. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.